you have ever been into my office or if you've ever uh, walked by my office, you might notice that I have a few books. Uh, Really, when I say a few books, it's not realistic. I stopped counting last time at several thousand. I have a lot of books. I I like to read. Matter of fact, I don't just like to read. I have an obsession with reading. I always have. It's a relaxing system for me. Uh, and I read everything. I read all kinds of books. It's always amazing when somebody comes to my office and they see the books. The first question almost always is, have you read all of these? Uh, and I have. I don't put them in my office until I read them. I usually read anywhere between 15 and 20 books a month. Uh, it helps that I can speed read. It helps that I'm a night owl. Uh, but it also helps that I can't put books down. I, uh, I guess I'm obsessive compulsive. And I start a book, uh, especially if it's only a couple of hundred pages. I read it until it's done uh, as quickly as I can. And uh, I read, like I said, everything. I read everything uh, from ministerial books that have to deal with theology, that have to deal with church, that has to deal with uh, issues that the church is facing. Uh, I read a lot of historical books. I'm a history lover, and so I read a lot about world history and about American history. I read about church history. I even read historical fiction books. I uh, read books just for guilty pleasure. People like Grisham and Lee Childs and David Baldacci, uh, even James Patterson sometimes when I uh, like to find guilty pleasures, but probably most of the books that I read under the outline of history would be biographies. Uh, If you've been here at any amount of time in the church, you know that I love people's stories. I love to hear people's stories. I believe the Bible is a book made up of people's stories. I think history is about people living life uh, and how they impacted history through the lives that they lived, the decisions they made, uh, the choices that they lived through, the times that they lived through. And biographies do just that by telling someone's story. I read all kinds of biographies, from presidents to entertainers, from generals to entrepreneurs to inventors to just everyday people because I'm enthralled by seeing what makes people tick. You see, if it's a really good biography, what happens is it it shows you everything. It shows you what influenced them. It shows you how they made some of the choices they made, good and bad. It shows you how maybe we can learn some lessons from their life. Uh, I found it interesting several years ago when Walter Isaacson put out a biography on Steve Jobs. Uh, people were not surprised to learn that he was very complex, a very brilliant, uh, a very entrepreneurial type person. But everyone seemed surprised to find out that he was not a very good person, uh, especially to those that were his friends and family, that he could be uh, very mean and very off-putting. That's what a good biography does. It lets you see everything. And throughout this spring, we've been reading through a mini-biography, a short biography on someone who came to be known as one of the founders of the Jewish faith, one of the leaders of the nation of Israel. He's considered one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, and that's Joseph. And as we've read through this spring Joseph's story, like a good biography, we've learned what makes him tick. We've learned uh, what motivates him. We've learned what allows him to make the decisions that he made. And and we've discovered several what, what I call core values that are a part of Joseph's life that led him to make the decisions he made. You see, all of us in this room have core values. We have several beliefs that we hold dearer than anything else we believe, and it's those beliefs that lead us to the thoughts we have, lead us to the actions that we have, and it's our core values that make up our worldview. See, it's our core values that make up 
how we see the world around us. What we believe in our heart that we hold on to the closest helps us understand and interpret the world around us. And we've read through the life of Joseph what his core values were, what his heartbeat, I'm calling it, was. And as we've read through it and looked at his, his good decisions and bad decisions, we've understood that they have arrived from his core value. But there was a lingering question that still sticks in my head. A lingering question that still sticks in my heart. And as I draw a close to this series, as we look at the end of the series, it's a question that I just really didn't understand until it came to the end of Joseph's life. It's the question of how. How in the world did a 17-year-old boy that was beaten and bruised and threatened with death by those who loved him the most, his brothers, how did he endure that? How did he overcome that? I mean, some of us have history in our background of things that we've had to endure and overcome. How did Joseph do it? How did this 17-year-old boy that gets sold into slavery move into a foreign country in a language he didn't know, in a culture he wasn't about, with no friends, no family, and yet he never lost hope or faith. How did he do that? How did he resist temptation over and over again, even to the point of being accused of sexual harassment and being thrown into prison for something that he did? How did he not lose his faith? And then he's in prison for 10 years for something he didn't do. How did he not turn his back on God? How did he not get angry? How did he not get bitter? Uh, How did he not let those things damage and hurt his heart? And even when he rose to power, even when he was given wealth and, and influence and popularity, how did he not let that go to his head? How did he not uh, let those things consume who he was, overtake who he was? And then at the end of the story, he's put in a position where he has control and power over the very people that hurt him. And instead of paying them back, he not only saved them, he forgave them and he helped them. How could he do that? You see, it's those hows that biographies answer. It's those hows that you and I, hopefully, over these last 16 weeks, have have examined in our own life to see some truths that maybe we could apply to our own lives. Maybe some, some core values that we could apply to our own lives. And as I ask that question, in one of the very last written incidents in the life of Joseph, I think he answers it in the most definitive way. We've seen little truths. We've seen little answers along the way. But I think he clearly answers it as he's talking to his brothers after his dad dies. And in answering it, he reveals what his heartbeat is, what his core values are. And as we look at this for just a few minutes, I want to ask you, what are your core values? What are your unchangeables? What are the things that are in your heart and in your head that motivate and drive you to make the decisions that you make, to see the world the way you see it? Because I want to suggest to you that If all of those hows I just asked aren't a reality in your life, if you can't see yourself doing some of those things, then maybe your core values are not matched up with where God wants them to be. And so I just want to real quickly look at a couple of these core values so that we might examine our own lives and the core values that we have and and the worldview, how we see things. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. And I said it's one of the last instances of Joseph in his life uh, that we have before he dies. Uh, Starting in verse 15, and I think some of it is in your order of service. 
So when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong we did? Now remember, this we talked a couple of weeks ago. They were fearful. For 17 years, their dad has lived, and they've been in Egypt living under forgiveness. And so they are scared now that dad's dead. Joseph's forgiveness and grace is not going to be following. It's not going to be uh, a part of the condition. And so they're scared. And so what they do, and I told you a couple of weeks ago, is they write a Dear Joseph letter from Dad, which it's one of those things that, like, you missed school, and uh, you didn't want your parents to know you missed school, so you wrote the letter yourself and signed your parents' names. That's how this letter comes across. So here's what they said. Uh, So they sent word to Joseph, saying, they wrote this, Your father left these instructions before he died. For this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servant of God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Uh, Joseph was heartbroken because Joseph hoped that they understood for 17 years. He didn't just forgive them once. He forgave them for all time. He not just forgave, he removed it so that it was no longer even an issue. So Joseph wept. And so Joseph calls his brothers together and how Joseph responds to them reveals his heart. It reveals the true character of who he is. So listen to what Joseph says. When his brothers came, they threw themselves down before him and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? For you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish now what is being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid, for I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now maybe you didn't see it, but there were some truths there that helped his brothers recognize that all of the things that had happened happened for a reason. And the first core value that's probably the most important core value for all of us in this room is really two core values lunched in together. He said, am I now standing in the place of God? You see, the first thing that Joseph wanted them to understand is there is a God, but I'm not him. And you see, that's an important core value, even for those of us that come to church. Now, probably most of us in this room would say we believe that there is a God. Joseph uh, recognized that there was a God. He remembered the stories. Remember his great-grandfather, Abraham, made a covenant with God. He's heard those stories. He remembered that his grandfather, Isaac, walked with God and talked with God. He even remembered that his dad, Jacob, had a wrestling match with God, a wrestling match where God changed his name to Israel and left him with a broken hip to remember always as he wrestled with God. So he had read all about God. But Joseph didn't believe in God because he'd read about him or he'd heard stories about him. Joseph believed in God because he'd experienced him. You see, he saw God's hand in his life. He sensed God's protection. He had a relationship to God. And in that, Joseph put his faith and his hope that not only was God real, but he was personal. See, the Bible tells us that this book was given to us as a way to reveal God to mankind. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that even if we didn't have this book, even if we didn't know this book existed, God is revealed through His creation every day. You see, all you have to do, Paul says, is go outside and look around and you recognize there is a God. I mean, tell me, you don't go stand at Thunderhill Overlook when the sun's coming up and not believe that there is a God, that there is a Creator. Listen, even scientists that had dismissed God 
Even scientists that had walked away from God have come to the conclusion that there has to be someone at the top of the chain, an intelligent designer, someone, if they believe Big Bang, somebody caused the Big Bang to happen. Someone was there at the beginning. Now, they don't like to call it God, but that's who it is. Even atheists that argue so hardly against the things of God are really only arguing against that God spark that's in their heart that they're rebelling against. Because let me just ask you, if you really didn't believe in something, would you spend all your time arguing against it? I mean, you don't see anybody arguing against mermaids or leprechauns, do we? Nobody's, I don't want to burst your bubble. They're not real. They, we don't, nobody's out there debating and arguing that we shouldn't, you know, on the Lucky Charms box have a leprechaun because somebody's going to believe that that's a reality. Nobody believes that. So you don't have to argue about it. So if atheists really don't believe that there's a God, why do they spend so much time and energy trying to argue about it? Because in their heart of hearts, the Bible tells us that all of us have been given the nature of God Himself, and they are arguing and rebelling against their very spirit, and they know it. You see, there is a God, and we can declare this morning as the people of God and the children of God that we believe that there is a God. But that second thing that's where there gets to be a little hitch. Because Joseph understood that there is a God, but he also understood that I'm not him. And you see, I think that's probably the biggest core value we see argued in our society today. Now for Joseph, what it meant when he said, I am not him, it meant, I'm not him, so I don't control the circumstances of my life. God controls those things. I'm not God, so I don't know what God knows. He tells his brothers, I'm not God, you don't stand in judgment before me. But what it means for us today is to ask the question, who is our God? You see, that's what I believe our culture is rebelling about. We can look at all the arguments and discussions about bathrooms and marriages and lifestyles. Those are just peripheral issues. You see, the real issue is who is God? And you and I can make a choice. We either choose to worship the one true, unchanging God of the Bible and live our lives according to His Word, or we choose to worship ourselves. We choose to worship our own corrupted and twisted minds and thoughts most of the time which fluctuate according to our feelings. That's why you hear people say, I think maybe this is okay because I feel this way. Or I think this. The Bible says our thinking and our feelings are corrupted. And so the question is not whether you feel a certain way or you love something or you emotionally are attached to something. The question is who's your God? Because if you believe that God is the God of the Bible, then you will worship Him and live your life according to His Word. You see, the Bible is very clear. One of those choices brings life, and one of them brings death. Joseph understood there is a God, and I'm not Him. The second thing that Joseph said that I believe is one of his core values is he said, what you meant for evil... You see, the second core value that I think is important for us to grasp this morning is that we live in a fallen and evil world. There's nothing you and I can do about it. it is, you don't have to read the Bible to know that the world is evil. All you have to do is turn on the news, right? All you have to do is, is turn on the internet and read things. Just last night, there was a shooting in a nightclub in, in Orlando. You'll read about it when you get home. 20 people killed, 40 wounded. Hate crime, they think possible terrorism. We live in a fallen and evil and messed up world. So how do you explain that evil? Because we worship ourselves. Because sin corrupts. Because the world is evil by its nature. How else do you explain 
Ten brothers beating up their youngest brother almost to the point of death and then selling him into slavery and then going back to their heartbroken dad and telling him he's dead. We live in an evil world. How else do you explain that millions upon millions of pre-born babies are murdered every year legally in our country and nobody blinks an eye? We live in an evil and fallen world. How else can you explain that around the world today there are Christian little boys and little girls that are being beheaded and sold into slavery, raped and persecuted simply because the name of Jesus Christ, because we live in an evil world? Why should we be surprised when the world around us shouts crucify him? See, Joseph understood he lived in an evil world. I heard it's been written before that if we don't live expecting a cross, how will we ever be able to carry one? You see, Joseph knew it was an evil world. He knew that there is a God and he wasn't God. But then right after that in verse 20, he continues, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because you see, while we live in an evil world, he believed that God was sovereign. What does that mean? That means that God is in control no matter what happens in this world. No matter how much bad happens, no matter how much evil happens, God is in control. It's one of the consistent parts of Joseph's story that no matter what he faced, he knew God was in control. God is in control. God is in control. You see, when you and I can place that value at the center of our hearts to recognize that no matter what we endure, no matter what we face, God has a plan that God is in control. Do you know the peace that passes over you? When you recognize that the things that are happening to you are beyond your control because God has a plan, because God is in control, do you understand that that brings uh, just the opposite of fear? The Bible says great faith drives out fear. Heard a message from Andy Stanley a couple of weeks ago. He was chastising parents and adults for all the end of world doom and gloom about the current politics that's going on in the country. He said, basically, he said, stop scaring our kids. Because if you listen to the way people talk, you would think that this next election is going to usher in the end of the world. Does that mean that God didn't know who was going to be nominated? Does that mean that God was surprised at who's going to win the election at the United States of America? Is it out of his plan? Listen, either God's in control or he's not in control. Should you pray for our country? Yes, please, every day, all the time. Should you worry and be in fear? No, because that's not who we are. God is in control. Listen, go back and read history. Read what they said about Abraham Lincoln. Read what they said about Andrew Jackson. Go back and read just 40 years ago what they said about Ronald Reagan. If he was going to be elected, it was going to be the end of the world. You think it's ugly politics? Go read what Sam Adams and Thomas Jefferson said about each other, and they were friends. Listen, yes, we live in an evil and messed up world, but we also recognize that God is sovereign, and He is in control, and nothing catches Him off guard. Joseph continued, For you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Why did He intend it for good? He said in verse 20, To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of lives. You see, Joseph believed that there is a God, and I'm not him. He believed we live in a messed up, fallen world, and that's beyond his control. But he also believed that God is sovereign. And in God's sovereignty, he was working a plan for his good. That's what he said there. What the world intended for good, you intended, what the world intended for harm, you intended for good. Why? 
for the saving of souls. You see, God is always using the circumstances in our life to mold and make me into Jesus and to work His will in His kingdom. When you can grasp that core truth, it changes your worldview. It changes the way that you see things around you. It changes the way that you see the things that you have to go through. When we trust that it all fits into God's plan, even when we don't understand it, even when we can't explain it, and even when we may never see the end results. See, we're result-oriented in America today. We like things quick, right? We are instant gratification. And so sometimes when we pour our heart and we're trusting God, we don't see the results. We give up. Listen, you and I may never see the results of our faithfulness this side of heaven, but we trust that God had a plan. And there's a reason that God is using each one of us, the reason we're going through what we're going through. There's a reason you may faithfully be serving, not seeing any benefits, because God is working His plan His way. This is one of my life verses. It's one of the verses that I claim uh, for my life. What the world intended for evil, God used for good. Not just for me, but for those around me. I can't tell you, as I look back on my life and see all the things that the world intended for evil for me, all the things that happened to me early in my life that God, over time, has taken and used to make me a better man and a better husband and a better father and a better minister. All of the things that I've been able to minister, people I've been able to minister to, that I never would have been able to minister to had not walked that path. Because you see, what the world meant for evil, God meant for good. Usually when you have this passage, this passage here in chapter 50, verse 20, people like to throw Romans 8, 28, right? Kind of bookends this. All things work together for good, right? But we forget the second part of that verse. All things work together to good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. Because you see, that verse is a conditional verse. It's not conditional that all things work together for good, but it's conditional that you and I might recognize it. Because you see, if you don't have a hard passion for God and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you can't see that He's working all things together for good. All you see is the bad. But what Paul says there in Romans is that if we love God and are called according to His purposes, then we see that all things in our life are working together for His good. And we kind of leave out that second part too. According to His purposes. Because it's His plan, and it's His good, and it's His work, and it's His will. You see, if we can ever grasp, guys, and make a part of our core values, make a part of our worldview, that there is a God, He's real and He's righteous, and He's holy, and I'm not Him. And His thoughts and His ways and His works are bigger than anything I could ever imagine. If we would ever understand that, yes, we live in an evil world, this world does not love the things of God. You can pray for our nation, but America is not a Christian nation. You can pray for the world, but the world is not a Christian world. It is against the things of the world, John said in 1 John. If we would recognize that God is a sovereign God, that He is in complete control, there is nothing happening outside the world of God's hand, that everything that happens happens for a reason. And we also recognize that if He's a sovereign God, then He is a sovereign God that is working His plan for my good, that everything He does fits into His plan, and I will benefit from it. So what is His plan? What does Joseph say in the last verse? So then don't be afraid, for I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. You see, God's ultimate plan for my life is that I would bless others. 
See, Joseph's job was not to save his brothers. God was saving his brothers. Joseph's job was to be the instrument of salvation. Joseph recognized that his part of the plan was to be there to forgive and to love and to bless. You see, Joseph's core value was recognizing that God had a plan for his life. And some of you say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. God's will is that you be a blessing to others. How? By sharing the love of Jesus Christ. See, you can't save people. That's God's job. I know sometimes we get mad. As a pastor, I, I get mad. I, you know, I want people to come to know Christ. That's my heart. That's my passion. But I don't save people. God saves people. If I saved them, they get lost when they walked out of here. But what I can do is I can be an instrument for His good, and I can do everything I can to fit myself into His plan so that I can be used to bring about the salvation of others. That's what Joseph did. You see, God in His timing took Joseph from Canaan to Egypt for a reason, so that the right time and the right place, he would rise to power, so that when a famine struck the land and drought struck the land, Joseph was ready on the spot to be used as what? An instrument of salvation for his family. You see, God did the same thing almost 2,000 years later when he sent Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ to endure suffering and shame and death. Why? So that he would be an instrument of salvation, not for a nation, but for an entire world. You and I don't save people, but we are the instruments of a part of his plan. If we can recognize that. See, hear me, I'm done, listen. If you could look at your core values and say... I really believe, number one, that there is a God and I'm not Him. Number two, we live in a fallen and evil world. Number three, that God that I worship, that I praise, is a sovereign God, is in total control, and I place my faith totally in Him. How do you do that? You do that through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I place my faith totally in Him, knowing that He is going to use His sovereignty and His plan for my good. I may not feel like good at the time. It may not look good. I may not recognize that it's good. But I know and I trust that even this present suffering, whether it be cancer or divorce or separation from friends and family, whatever I'm going for, I know that God has a plan and He is working in me for His good. And the way I fit into that plan is I make myself available to bless others. Not run around in circles and chase this and chase. I make myself available and say right here, right now, as was told earlier, I don't look for an open door. I say, I'm going to go until you tell me to stop. See, God has a plan for us. Why? How did Joseph do all of those things? Because these were the most important things in his life. And in every decision that he made, you can see these values weaving their way through. You can see them in every part of his story, even from the beginning. And we know today that through Jesus Christ, these same core values, if we will make them a part of our lives, they will give us a peace that passes understanding. They will give us a joy in the midst of struggle. They will give you a light in the darkness. If we trust Him, they will give us hope, even though we live in a fallen and messed up world. So my question to you is the same as I started. What are your core values? What are those things that drive your decision-making? that drive your attitude, that create your worldview? What is it in your life that you hold too dearly, that you don't compromise, that allows you to become who you are? Even better question, what if someone was writing your biography this morning? What if they were writing your story? What would the conclusions be that they would come to about you, the whys, the hows? 
What would they boil it down to in your core values? That's what makes a difference. That's how Joseph became a dreamer and became faithful to God's call. Let's pray.